0: Hello and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do praise you for just being an awesome God. And uh, we thank you that we can uh, lift our hands up to you, Father, and praise you. I pray, Father, that we would always be attuned to, attentive to the things that You are doing, Father, in our lives. Help us not to miss it or take it for granted. Father, I pray that You would uh, speak to us here today and that You would encourage us through these kings, Father, and how they live their lives and that we can learn from them what to do and from what not to do. And I just thank You, Father, that Your Word speaks to us throughout all time and that history repeats itself, Father, and I pray that we would learn from these things so that we would be wise. Father, uh, teach us today, tonight, through your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 15. And in 1 Kings chapter 15, we're coming to a place in the history of Israel where we watched Israel actually go through a civil war, we said. There's the north, there's the south. And uh, you're watching a strange compilation, we said, where the north got to be fallen away from the Lord because the south, Judah, and it's referred to as Judah, and Israel is to the north and Judah is to the south. Two separate nations, two separate kings. And uh, we saw how there was King David when it was all united. Great king. Solomon followed in his footsteps, was wise, but he was a hard taskmaster. Solomon's son, Rehoboam took over the south, and this guy Jeroboam, so you think of Ray and Jerry, Jerry's up to the north, and Jeroboam breaks off and says, we're not going to be taskmasters to this anymore, we're tired of the hard work now that Solomon's dead, and the city falls into, or the nation falls into a, a, a civil war. And we're watching now a, a long litany of kings that are going to be mentioned, and We're going to find out it's going to be kind of confusing as one king's being spoken about, then another king's being spoken about, and one's being spoken about in reference to another king, and it gets to be a confusing gobbledygook as we're going through kings. But hopefully for today, we're going to see that uh, this line now was down to the south, down to the good side was, if you would, where they had the temple of God was down to the south. They're going to maintain their walk with God, while the the north, it's going to fall away. And we're looking now at the southern kings. And it's going to say in chapter 15, it says, Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Jeroboam was the king to the north, and they're just giving you a reference. So Jeroboam has been there for 18 years, and now all of a sudden you're going to see uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. This Abijam is going to become king over Judah. So Abijam is going to be the son of Rehoboam. So, if it was now Ray and Jerry, now uh, Rehoboam is dead, and now his son Abijam is going to take over. So, Abijam became king over Judah to the south, to the good part, for a while. And it's going to say he reigned for three years. It's not a very long term in office for being a king. Normally, kings could be there 30, 40, 50 years. But he is going to be there for three years. It says he reigned three years in Jerusalem, and it says, in his mother's name was Micah, Mecca, the daughter of uh, Abishalom, whoever she was. And he walked in the sins of his father, which I guess he was a taskmaster like his father Rehoboam, which he had committed before, before him, before him, in his heart, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, like the heart of his father David. David was the good king, so that David would be his great-grandfather, something along there, right? So Solomon's son, uh, uh, Rehoboam would be grandson to David, and then great-grandson. So David was really serving the Lord, and this guy, his heart's not there. So it's gone through four generations, and you're watching things fall apart. And then you're getting a little insight here. It says, but for David's sake, because David, the great grandfather, but for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Why? Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him Oh, except uh, 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 that little incident, right? He commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. Remember, he killed his friend Uriah because he slept with uh, Bathsheba, and David was an adulterer and a murderer, and this little sin is following him around, even in the history books. And then you get a little footnote. It says, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. So his father and his Jeroboam. And now this guy is carrying the banner of Rehoboam by having you know, a war going on between the north and the south. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? There's a little hallmark for us for a reference saying that there's another book out there with more information in it, and that's what we have in our Bible, the book of Chronicles. We're going to look at there in a minute. And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, became king in his place. So we're now gonna get introduced to his son. So we hear Abijam is a little blip three years in according to the records of kings. And now we're gonna get into this guy, Asa. A-S-A. You could pronounce it Asa, you could pronounce it Asa, Asa. I prefer Asa. Sounds a little bit more dignified at this point anyway. So, you know, this may be the incorrect, but I'm just not gonna keep calling the guy ASA. But anyway, <laughs> Um, we're going to learn a little bit about him. So he's going to get passed on and things are going to go this way. Now, don't forget, it's going to be important that we said that you are got to understand that First and Second Kings in the Bible is a history book. And then you're going to find out that Chronicles is a history book. And if you would, you could almost look at them as two different newspapers. You have a civil war going on. you got the civil war between the north and the south, if you would. And if you're going to find out that Kings is really going to be the newspaper of the north, right? And it's going to tell you about the northern kings. And they're not going to speak too highly of the southern kings because they're the northern newspaper, if you would. And now when we go through Chronicles, you're going to read the southern newspaper, if you would. And they're going to have a different perspective, a different slant. And so we're going to glean a lot of information if we're going to go back and forth between Kings and Chronicles. So uh, it's interesting and and I like the Bible because it understands you've got two different sides and it wants to present a whole picture. That's why there's four gospels. We said we talked about this last week or whatever it was. Last time we were here and we said the four Gospels because you got four different opinions on this is what Jesus did. We watched Him and someone else may have a different slant on it and someone else may have a different slant on it. And the Bible says, why don't we give you all four opinions and then you can meld it together if you would and come up with your own idea of what's happening. And they do the same thing in the Old Testament when they're given history. They're saying, well, we're not going to just give you things from one perspective. We'll give you the other perspective as well. And so it's important you're reading about history And history sometimes is interpreted in view of the victors, as they say. And as we're going through kings, this is the northern perspective. And it just says, yeah, this guy was there for three years. Doesn't say a whole lot about him. And then it just goes to verse 9 and it's going to say, so in the 20th year of Jeroboam, Uh, now they're going up there in reference to the northern king, the king of Israel, this guy Asa, began to reign as king of Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. That's a good long time to be king, 41 years. And his mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom. So this guy is going to say that's his grandmother. So if this other guy, the first guy, Abijam, reigned for three years, you got to figure now uh, maybe that would be his mother and now all of a sudden you're going to find out this guy died, maybe he died suddenly and after three years his son's going to reign and maybe you're having a grandmother figure taking care of a younger king. If he's going to reign for 41 years, maybe he was 20, maybe he was younger when he became king and he's going to sit down and say, I'm going to trust in what my grandmother says. She knew what my dad wanted. I'm trying to take over the reins of the kingdom. And somehow or another, this, this lady Mako, and it just says the daughter of Abishan was his mother, but the Hebrew doesn't quite break it down well. They're meaning to say grandmother, because obviously you can go back to verse 2. So there's not something perverse going on where she mothers brothers or anything like this, or something weird. But it's just saying the grandmother was there. And it's got to be interesting, you're going to see a point where this grandmother, maybe she thought she had a little bit too much of a control on the throne... But watch what happens Uh, in verse 11. And and Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. So this kid's going to turn out to be really serving God. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land, and he removed all the idols which his fathers had made. So he's getting rid of all that stuff. He also removed Mekah, his mother, from being a, quote-unquote, queen mother. Because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah, perverted sexual thing. And Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. So you're watching Asa, he's coming into the family, his dad was there for three years, he's taking over the throne, he's got the grandmother figure, and obviously we're going to find out that uh, she had her own little throne set up next to the king, so if you wanted to go speak to the king, you better clear it through grandma, because she pulls the strings on what the king says. And Asa raises up and he says, no, nah, I don't play this game, God made me king. I don't like particularly what grandma's doing with this horrendous sexual thing that she's made. I'm gonna smash her throne, I'm gonna smash this image that she says, and he's turning around and says, We're gonna serve God and God alone. And Ace is a guy you who go, whoo, like this guy. He's he's not holding back nothing. And he says, We're not gonna have these male cult prostitutes, these homosexual things running around. We're not having false gods around here. We're Israel. God told us to worship Him. If we worship God, then we'll have success. He understands that. And if we turn our backs on God, we're going to lose the whole country. And so Asa comes up and he's a strong man. And he's going to say, we don't mess around. If this is wrong, if this is sin, destroy it. I don't care if it's politically correct or not. We're ripping it out and destroying it. And he's marching forward, even if it comes down to grandma says sorry queen mother it's not the bible to have you running the nation it's not the way things are supposed to be you're bringing a horrendous horrible i have no idea what it was but it was just horrible image and he's like smash it to pieces i like it he took her Asherah in verse 13 and asked her cut down her horn." he burned it in the kidron valley he says there grind it all up and get rid of this thing it's disgusting And this is this guy, he did what was right. And he's going to stand up. But the high places, now, if you can remember, we were talking about all the occultic things last time, and I don't want to go through all the sexual things that were here again. People would go up to the high places, have a big orgy, and he's saying, but the high places were not taken away. And that's where they had their little bowl, where the stuff, nevertheless... It says, nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. And he brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. So he's blessing the Lord. He's bringing into the storehouse of God blessings. And he's saying, we're going to take care of the temple and he's going to take care of it. Now we're going to see a little side here. And it's a very important story of Asa. You've got to get a hold of this because I really believe it's a turning point in the whole history of Israel. But watch this story, verse 16. It says, Now there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. So for us at this point, if we're just going through kings, we go, who's Basha? And you're going to find out, it's telling us all these kings, and then we're going to find out how Basha comes in next week, and he's going to come in. But right now, Uh, they're just assuming that we understand that the kings of the north are going to go through a line of deterioration and uh, Jeroboam is going to fall apart and Basha is going to take over. And now Basha, and so you have grandsons, if you would, are now duking it out. So Asa is still duking it out with the grandson or the son of Jeroboam over here. And there's battles going on. And it says, And Basha king of Israel, so up to the north, he went up against Judah down to the south, and fortified and here's a key city called rama okay rama is going to be a city that's going to be right on a border town if you would between the north and the south and right there's going to be this this stronghold which is going to block all the traffic so you can't get commerce to go through it and they're setting up the north is starting to build this stronghold there to come in to make an attack onto the south So Basha, king of Israel, went up against Judah, verse 17 again, and fortified, meaning he built up, he beefed up the city of Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, king of Judah. So he's starting to put a stranglehold on him. says, then Asa took all the silver, and this is Asa's little plan, grabbed some cash that he has, then Asa took all the silver and the gold which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So he goes into the church checking account and writes a big check. The house of the Lord and the treasuries into the king's house and he delivered them into the hands of his servants. He gave them to a few of his men. And King Asa, the guy of the south, sent them to another character we're being introduced to, this guy Ben-Hadad, the son of Te- Bremenoth, Bremenon, right? Now, Ben-Hadad is going to be the Syrian title for a king, a leader, a prince. It's not a name. Ben-Hadad is not a name. It's a title, okay? We're going to hear a lot of Ben-Hadads in the future if you come back to keep hearing about kings. But he's going now, if you would. If, I wish I had my little drawing diagram here. You've got a picture, Israel... It's north and south. Rama's dead in the middle. Asa turns around and he says, we're starting to have the north come together to, to come against us. And he's going to scratch his head and he says, I got me a plan. This is a good idea. I'm going to go over there and take all my money and give it to the Syrians up north on the other side, way up here, even farther north of Israel. I'm going to give this money to this guy, ben Haddad, the son of Timanov, and uh, whatever his name is, and he's going to come down, and we're going to get him to attack Israel from the north. And so, all of a sudden, Israel's going to quit picking on me, and now, all of a sudden, Israel's going to have to worry about the northern borders, and they're going to let up on us. Sounds like a good game plan. It sounds pretty smart. And you go, this guy's thinking. He's saying, I, I want to take my money and make it do something. So uh, he says at the end of verse 18, the son of Hezron, king of Aram, Aram is a region which Syria is part of, who lived in Damascus, Syria, part of that area, saying, okay, this is my plan. Let there be a treaty between you and me. As between my father and your father, behold, we're all buddies here. I have sent you, oh, a present of silver and gold. And he says, go, this is what I want you to do. Break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, the northern area. Stab him in the back for me, right? So that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad, listen to King Asa. Hey, put some money in my pocket. I'll stab your brother in the back for you to take some pressure off of you. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa, and He sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel. And he conquered Aijon, uh, Dan, Abel, Beth, Mecca, and all Cherenoth, and besides all the land of Nethili. So these are the northern areas of even Israel, the borderline northern parts. And so the Syrians are coming in and they're starting to attack it. And it came about when Basha heard of it, that he ceased fortifying Rama. So now Basha, the guy's up to the north, he's being attacked from the northern border, and he goes, I can't continue to build up Rama. right? <clears throat> and it came about when Basha heard of it, that he ceased fortifying, building up the walls of Rama, and remained in Tizra, further up to the north to take care of the northern battles. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. So now he's down to the south. Asa's down there and he goes, look, guys, this is what we paid money for to get these guys off of our backs. So he goes, this is what I want everyone to do. He says, none was exempt. Every single man, woman and child. I don't care what it is. He says, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber in which Basha had built. So they're going, Okay. This guy's going up there. Every single one of us just go up there. You pick up one stone and come home. And let's rip apart this city so we're going to get rid of this plan uh, of Basha. So it's pretty cool. I like that. King Asa made a proclamation to Aljuna. None was exempt. Everybody go pick up a stone. And they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timbers with which Basha had built. And King Asa built with them a whole other city, Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Let's build up our side of the war side here. Now the rest of all the acts of Asa and all the might and all that he did in the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Which is our chronicles. They're going, you want more information? Go look it up. But in the time of his old age, it's interesting, it's got to note, he was diseased in his feet. And that's all it tells us. And Asa slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His father and Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. So this is, we said First and second Kings was the newspaper of the north. They're not going to give you a whole lot of information. They're saying, yeah, we know this guy. Asa, he was the one that came up with this game plan, tricked us. He stabbed us in the back and had this other king attack us. And then he ripped apart our city and then he built a fortified city with it. Kind of leaves it kind of vague. But we read the story and we go, hey, look it. Well, that's thinks he's pretty smart. He goes, you know what? I had a problem. And I took the checkbook out. I paid off somebody to take care of it. He had a little scheme in the back of his mind and it worked. And he says, we figured this out. We got a problem and we took care of it. God, wasn't it a great idea? And if you just look at the story at this level, you can almost say, okay, good boy, Asa. You, you, you figured it out. You're a little tricky. You're a little conniving. You, you bailed out the country and things looked good. But when we do a little homework and we read the Southern newspaper, we're going to find out that what he did wasn't good at all let's do some homework let's go over to chronicles go over to first chronicles or sorry second chronicles chapter 14 so this is the southern newspaper i like to call it and they're going to give you history yes second chronicles Let's just get a little flavor for this, and you've got to check this out. Let's go to chapter 13. And I just, I don't know. There's some wars going on here of biblical proportions. So this is now going to go to Abijam. Remember Abijam, the guy that was only there for three years? And we're going to hear this little story. And you go, man, Abijam was a pretty cool dude didn't say much, just gave us a little blip and left us there. It says, in the, in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijam, so here's, Abijam became king over Judah. This is almost the exact same story. It's got to be retold with more information in it. Of course, the southern newspaper has got to give us more information. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Micaiah, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah began to battle with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men, while Jeroboam drew up in battle for formation against him with how many? 800,000 men. So stop and think here. Let's get some numbers in our mind, right? Uh, you know, how many men died in Vietnam for 10 years, right? 50,000 men died in Vietnam. I was corrected, right? Mary got some exact number on that. I once said 40 and she said 50. Call it 60, okay? That's a staggering number on the size of our country and how many people were impacted by the deaths of people that died in Vietnam. Now, how many people, how many soldiers do we have over in the Gulf right now? We have 135,000 soldiers, I think is the number. Does that sound about right? Uh, Of troops that we have in Iraq. So that's the mother load of all countries, right? Taking on uh, another country and we're sending in 135,000 troops, right? These guys are sitting down there saying, we're going to go out to battle with 400,000 men. The logistics of that is staggering. Now, here's the guy down in the south. He's going to go to war and he's facing 800,000 men. Big battle scene going on. Line them up. Pull out your sword. Let's duke it out. These battles take days, not years, days. So you can imagine, okay, Abijah, the guy to the south, the two tribes are going to take on the ten tribes. We're going to duke it out to battle. 400,000 chosen men, while Jeroboam, Jeroboam up to the north, he's going to say, you want to duke it out? Me and my boys are showing up. we got 800,000 chosen men who were valiant warriors. Then Abijah stood on Mount Zerimim, which is the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Listen to me, Jeroboam and all Israel. We're going to sit down and talk about this before we fight. He says, Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel over to David and to his sons by the covenant of salt? They made a promise. God's on my side is what the little guy with 400,000, he's going to come up to the big guy and says, you know what? God's on my side, pal. I'm the one, that direct the direct descendant of David. You, you're not anything up there besides. Yet Jeroboam, right? The guy up to the south, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, verse six, the son of David rose up and rebelled against his master and worthless men gathered about him. So I saying, you, you're worthless, Pasha, right? And he says, uh, you worthless men gathered around him, you scoundrels who proved too strong for Rehoboam, okay, the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against him them. So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David being a great multitude and having uh, with you a golden calf which Jeroboam made for gods for you. So he goes, look at you guys. We're the godly people and you guys worship stupid golden calves we got God on our side, and you guys are worthless scoundrels. And you picked on Rehoboam, and yeah, he was young. You've got another fight coming with me, pal. Verse 9, have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, God's chosen priests? You don't even have them. And you made for yourself priests like the peoples of other lands uh, who comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams even he may become a priest of what are no gods. So he goes, your priesthood's a joke. We got true priests and yours are out there by anybody who can pay the price. But as for us, he says, this is the young guy with 400,000 troops going against 800,000. But as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. No way. And the sons of Aaron are ministering to the Lord as priests and to the Levites attend to their work. And every morning and evening they burn to the Lord burnt offerings and fragrant fragrant incense and the showbread is set into the clean table and the golden lampstand with its lamps is ready to light every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you, you forsaken him. Now, behold, God is with us. And at our head, and his priests with the signal trumpets the sound, the alarm against you. So us and we're marching into battle as godly people and our godly priests are fighting against you and your people that worship bulls. O oh, sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. So you hear what he's saying? This is the little guy. He's got the 400,000 going against the 100,000. He goes, hey, hey, I'm giving you one last chance. We got God on our side. Back down. You can surrender now. You can see this guy going, you little rat. We got 800,000 men. But Jeroboam had set an ambush. He goes, yeah, watch this, to come from the rear. So even as he's speaking, he's, he's sending half of his troops to come in from behind him. So that Israel was in front of Judah, the little guys to the south, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah turned around, All of a sudden, behold, they were attacked both front and rear. So they cried to the Lord. And the priests blew the trumpets. And the men of Judah raised a war cry. And when the men of Judah raised a war cry, and then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And when the sons of Israel, the big 800,000 guys, fled before the little Judah, 400,000, God gave them into their hand. And Abijah and his people defeated them with a great slaughter so that how many? 500,000 chosen men of Israel fell slain. That's a staggering defeat. One, two, three, four times the amount of troops we got in Iraq slaughtered in a week. I don't know how long a battle takes. day, two days, a week. One, Maybe this is one day. 500,000. So here's 400,000, 800,000. The four hundred goes, God's on our side, and 500,000 men dead on the battlefield. That's a number of biblical proportions, they say. When you read about a war and you're going, this is a civil war. What a slaughter. And thus it says, verse 18, thus the sons of Israel were subdued at that time and the sons of Judah conquered because why? They trusted in the Lord, the God of their fathers. That's why they won. Not because they were better shots with an arrow. Not because they were... Smart or did anything great, it's because it's what God did. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and he captured from him several cities, Bethel with its villages, Jeshunah with its villages, and Ephron with its villages, and Jeroboam, powerful in three years and he took 14 wives to himself very prosperous and became the father of 22 sons and 16 daughters so hey been a busy guy three years now the rest of the acts of abijah and the ways of his words are they not written in the teachings of the prophet edo which we don't even know who this edo guy is but he wrote up on the whole thing, and he's got a side of the story too. So you could do more homework, but that's a lost book. Now, that's just telling you this guy. So now let's go. It says, so now Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And his son Asa became king in his place. So we are understanding this whole story. And the land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. These were the good old days of Asa. And it says, And Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. And he removed the foreign altars and the high places, tore down the sacred pillars, and cut down the asherim. And he commanded Judah to, the, to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandments. He also removed the high places and in the incense altars from the cities of Judah anyway. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. These are the good old days, Asa. His son's taken over. Happy days are here. He also removed the high places and the incense. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 6. And he built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. So he starts off with a good time. For he said to Judah, he says, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we, we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. These are happy days. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 men from Benjamin. So that's a total of what? 580,000 men are now, his his, his army is building. He used to have 400, right? His, his father, Abijam, had 400, and now Asa's got 580,000. The military's growing, prosperity's happening, there's rest on every side, and they know, I gave to the Lord, and the Lord has taken care of me. That's a good feeling. Happy days. Now you got to hear this story. Uh, bearing shields and wielding bows, all of them were valiant warriors. So verse nine. Now check out this number. Now Zerah, the Ethiopian. So these are Africans, right? South of Egypt, Ethiopia. Is still Ethiopia, right? Now, Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of how big? One million men. It's a huge army. So, here's Asa thinking, I got 580,000. Now, I got a million men marching against my city. And not only a million men, but 300 chariots, which were like tanks, right? Right? And he came to Marisha. So Asa went out to meet him. And they drew up in battle. Formation in the valley of Zaretheth in Marisha, down to the south. And listen to this, verse 11. Then Asa called to the Lord his God. Here he is, his back's against the wall. He's facing an army twice his size. And he said, Lord, and this is a beautiful prayer, there's no one, There is no one besides Thee to help in the battle between the powerful and uh, those who have no strength. So help us. O Lord our God, for we trust in Thee. And in Thy name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. Thou art our God. Let not man prevail against Thee. What a beautiful prayer. His back's against the wall and he's saying, God... Look, I'm facing an army twice my size. I've got nothing to do here besides to say, Lord, I need you. I need you now. I don't. I, there's no place else for me to turn. I've got to have you do something here. Uh, we need a miracle. Hello, God. You know, if I go down, we go down, God. And I need you. That's a beautiful prayer. Sometimes God puts us in positions like that just so that we pray that way like what Cornelius always says. He says, you know, God knows how to get a prayer meeting started. You're not a man of prayer. God knows how to get you that way. One trial after another trial after another trial. And pretty soon you're going to be falling on your face. And you're saying, God, I think I need to start praying because my whole life has fallen apart. I am facing impending doom. I got a million man army out there ready to slaughter me. This is not funny, God. I need some help. So verse 12 So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gera. And so many Ethiopians fell that day, they could not recover. So they didn't even get a body count. For they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. And they carried away very much plunder. So a million man army came up. They had food with them. And now there's Israel, is, is, or Judah to the south, is, is blessed because they've got all this plunder. And they destroyed all the cities around Gera, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them. And they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels when they returned to Jerusalem. And so the Bible's pretty good about giving you some numbers. And where they're saying, we don't even know how much we took. We don't even know what was out there. There was a million of them coming at us, and we just got so many, we can't even count the dead, and we're so rich because we just slaughtered this army. Happy days are here again. And they did the right thing. They turned and they sought the Lord. So, now you're the king, you come back, and what do you think is going to happen? He says, now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Azra the son of Oded. Whoever he is, he's just Johnny Prophet who comes up and says, i got a message for you, king. The Spirit of the Lord picks this one guy and says, I want, I want you to use this. The Spirit of God came upon Azra the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa. He says, okay, Asa, you're coming back from battle, you're pretty cocky, you're pretty proud. And he said to him, listen, i got a word for you. Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you. When? When you are with Him. And the other biggest word in the Bible, And if you seek Him, He will let you find Him. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. And for many days Israel was out the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and they sought him and he let them find him. And in those times there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. And nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. And here's your word, King, but you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. And that's God's word to you. He's coming up and He's speaking to you and He says, if you are going to walk with God, you walk with me, God says, I take care of you. You turn your back on me, and you got nothing besides trouble. And sometimes we need to be encouraged that there's reward for our work. I think uh, many times uh, we as Christians can struggle and struggle, and we feel like we go, Lord, what's the, what's, what's the reason? What's the hassle? What's the bother? I'm tired of being a Christian seems like all I get is trials and tribulations and Satan coming against me and I'm sick of it, God. And what we do is we, we, we lose sight of our reward. And whether we know it or not, if we live a whole life of pain and misery, we know that as we die, we're in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is going to restore and rebuild and bless us for all time, space, and eternity. And our reward will be great as we persevere through these trials. It's just like anybody in a, in a bad marriage. They can sit down and say, I'm going through some of the worst days of my life. And yet if they persevere, they go through the trials and their marriage actually succeeds through those days. They're blessed with the reward of being able to say, I love my wife. I love my husband. You become closer and stronger than ever before. It's a beautiful thing sometimes to have gone through the trials and to be richly blessed. But you know what? When you're in the midst of it, it just seems like hell. You're ready to quit. You're ready to give up. You're ready to say, I can't do this anymore, Lord. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. And the prophet comes up and he says, you know what? Don't turn your back on God. You know what you've got to do. Whatever trial you're going through, God's going to bless you and give you a reward like never before. Don't lose sight of that. So verse 8, it says, Now when Asa heard the words of this prophecy, which Azariah the son of Oded, the prophet spoke, he took courage and he removed the abominable idols in all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country. So he's got a further clean house. And he had restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel, the northern country, remember? Many people were defecting from the north and coming down to the south because he just proved himself in battle against the Ethiopians. See, we didn't get that story in Kings, but now we get the story of the Ethiopians. And we're saying this is why a lot of people from the north were defecting to the south because Asa was a man who was willing to stand up and take courage for the Lord, get rid of the false idols. And the man on the street, whether he was from the north or the south, would say... I can follow that man, Asa. He's got a backbone. He's not compromising. I like him. And men were starting to say, I'm living up north and we're worshiping a bunch of stupid cows here. Now, this ain't God. This isn't the God of Israel and I'm a Jew. I'm sorry, I'm picking up my stuff and I'm moving south. I'm going to go down to the, to the land of the south and I'm going to buy a house down there and build a vineyard or start a, a family down there because that's where God is. And, and Asa was starting to see people being drawn to him. Why? Because he was a man of courage, a man of backbone, a man that said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to serve God and God alone and we'll... That's it. There's no other option. And you know what is we as Christians, we think, we think, you know, I want to go out and win people to the Lord. And then all of a sudden somebody comes up and confronts us. And the first thing we want to do is compromise our word. We want to compromise our beliefs. And somehow or another, we don't want to offend them. The net result is whenever the church wants to not offend someone by telling them the truth, The church dies. The church, whenever it stands up for truth and says, I'm sorry, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. And as the church stands up for righteousness, the world is drawn to it and says, they have convictions, they must believe in something, therefore I will listen. But when you are compromising, mealy mouth, you know, whatever, it all goes to heaven, you know, we'll do whatever, you know, blah, blah, blah. If you want to be a homosexual, it's okay, you know. I want to be your friend and I don't want to hurt your feelings. You know what? Church dies. Every time. You're watching churches that have accepted compromise in their life, rapidly deteriorate and be destroyed in vast numbers. While other churches that hold to their convictions are going to turn around and be prosperous and grow. People are flocking to them because they're saying, Why? Because they're speaking the truth. They're speaking what needs to be said. And that's exactly what Asa was doing. Asa was saying, God is it. This is what's going to happen. And Asa was starting to see people defect and come down to the south. They're all coming down, and they're saying, we want to be with you. You're a man of God. And it gets rather hairy here, but this is the Old Testament, verse 10. They assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the 15th year of Asa's reign. And they sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. And they entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God their fathers with all their heart and soul. So revival's breaking out. People are pumped up. Everything's going Ace's way. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death. <laughs> I think Ace might have went a little too radical here. That's it. We're serving the Lord. and You want to worship, kill him. <laughs> I don't know. As we as Christians, we don't need to go that far. Whether small or great, man or woman... Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought Him earnestly, and He let them find Him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. And He also removed Mica, the mother of King Asa, uh, from the position of queen mother, because she had made a horrid image. So this is more information that we've had before. But he goes in, and this is why he says, Grandma, get out of here. You're even gone. Hack her up. Because she made a horrid image of the Asherah, the sexual thing, and Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and he burned it in the brook Kidron. Throw it out in the trash. But the high places were not removed from Israel, Israel being to the north. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was blameless all his days. And he brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. And there was no more war in the 35th year of Asa's reign. Now we go into our story, verse chapter 16. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Basha king of Israel came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming into the king of Judah. So now we go back to this scene where the north and the south are going this way, and now the north is starting to build Ramah, the middle city which we already talked about, to stop all the people from defecting, right? In order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa king of Judah. Then Asa brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house, and he sent them to Ben king of Aram, who lived in Damascus. So we've heard this story, right? He says, Let there be a treaty between you and me and between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent your silver, I have sent you silver and gold. Go, break your treaty with Basha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and he sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and they conquered Dan Amalama, whatever, and all the store cities of Naphtili. And it came about when Basha heard of it that he ceased fortifying Ramah and he stopped his work. Then King Asa uh, brought all Judah and they carried away the stones and Ramah and its timbers with which Basha had been building and with them he fortified Geba and Mizpah. And at that time Hananiah, The seer, a prophet, he came to Asa. So the little scheme worked, and this is what's going to happen. And a prophet comes up to Asa, another whole prophet, king of Judah. And he said to him, I got a problem with what you just did. Your little scheme, man, you're trusting in this other king and your money to bail you out. God's going to come up and says, I got a problem with you. I just did all this great, wonderful works of miracles. You know the million men? We conquered them. What are you doing a little dirty, sneaky trick of thinking that money and Ben-Hadad is going to bail you out? You didn't need to do this. You didn't need to be sneaky and devious. Listen to his words. At that time, Hananiah the seer, just Johnny, you know, filled with the spirit, he, he comes to Asa. He said to Judah, Uh, He came to uh, Asa, king of Judah, and he said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram, and you have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians uh, and the Lubum, the people that were with them, an immense army and with very many chariots and horsemen yet? Because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And here's our verse that we just love. He says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. God's looking for a man. And He says, Show me a man with some backbone, and I'm going to bless his socks off and work with him. And if you want to rely on Aram to bail you out, Ben-Hadad. You're blowing it. He says, you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Asa didn't want to hear that. He thought he had a little plan and his little plan worked and he thought he was devious and he thought he was doing something great and he thought he got away with it and he thought he should get a pat on the back. He didn't need to be rebuked by some preacher coming up to him and telling him that he was doing something wrong and then asked asa at this point he's going to become asa no longer the ace but asa was angry with the seer and he put him in prison shut up for he was enraged at him for this and asa oppressed some of the people at this time like don't you dare tell me what to do And now the acts of Asa from first to last, behold, they're not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Asa slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. And they buried him in his own tomb which he had cut out for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the resting place which he had uh, filled with spices of various kinds blended by the perfumer's art and they made a very great fire for him. So now we start to see a little bit more of the story of Asa. Besides he just did a little crafty deed. We're starting to see that God did mighty things through him. He then did a little crafty deed. And because of his little crafty deed God came at him crippled his legs destroyed his walk Right? don't we as Christians have a walk don't we sometimes have a crippled walk and here he is he's saying I know what I've got to do I'm going to just pay every single doctor and these doctors and these physicians are going to bail me out and he squanders all of his money as he's living in pain, because God is saying, I'm not going to sit down there and bless this anymore. And the sad but true thing is, is if we look at Asa, it's a beautiful lesson for us because sometimes we need to understand it's when we become successful is the most scary time in our life. When our backs are against the wall and we're facing a million-man army that's going to destroy us, you and I are pretty smart. We're going to get on our knees and say, God, help me. I'm facing every single trial. I got no place else to turn. It's you or nothing, God. And God comes through and answers that prayer. But you know, when we have the money in the bank, when we've gained success according to the world and the ways that it operates, we have it tendency sometimes to start to use our crafty smart little ways of operating and saying hey i got a problem i just got arrested and i was falsely accused well it doesn't bother me i got an uncle that's downtown that's the police chief and he's going to get me out is that what you want to do rely on uncle wiggly to pull you out of jail or do you want to get on your knees and say lord i need you to get me out of jail I would rather have the results of Paul and Silas when they're in the innermost place as they're just sitting there praising the Lord. The whole jail cells falls apart, all the doors open up, and they're sitting down there free. Those are the results I like. And you're not going to get those results when you call upon Uncle Wiggly, the police chief, to come bail you out. When you're sitting down there, and when you're flat broke, and you're getting a bill that comes against you, and you say, Lord, I'll never be able to pay this. You fall on your knees and says, Lord, provide. And the Lord provides. But it's a sad day when you're facing a problem and you go, well, I'll just write a check and it will get me out of this situation. I don't need God. I've got my money. I've got my wealth. See, I'm a real smart, conniving guy and I'm going I'm to get myself out of the situation. And that's what poor Asa fell into where he turned around and he, he, he started trusting in his own confidence within himself when he was successful. We've got to learn that lesson. You say, Lord, I want want to call on You when I'm comfortable, not when I'm uncomfortable. Anybody's got to call on God when He's in the foxhole, when you're going through the trials and tribulations. Yeah, you can see people show up into the prayer meeting. They're having a trial of the century and they come crawling into the prayer meeting and say, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. And you go, well, most other people won't come to the prayer meeting. Because their life's okay. Why would I go to the church and pray at 10 o'clock at night? That's stupid. And really, you want to be able to say, that's when you need to be in prayer the most, is when everything's coasting, everything's fine, and you think you can handle it. You want to say, Lord, I want you, and I want you like never before. That's why we want to be in church, not just when we're going through a hard time, but because we want to be fed and nurtured and strong and prepared and ready in the good times. And it's King Asa who was turning around and he played the biggest fool. He says, I'm not going to, even though he had the biggest victories. He, of all people, should have said, you know what you do? I've got this, you know, northern problem. He's starting to see people come to him. Do you see what's happening? He's watching revival break out in his land because he was a man of backbone and, uh, and conviction of his word. Everybody was defecting to him a problem arises and he leans on his checkbook to bail him out and he connives a plan. And he does the very opposite of what it did to grow his kingdom. And we do that. God wants to grow us, prosper us, work in our lives. He does that because we call on His name. The Lord is searching and seeking. He says, I'm looking right into your heart. And He goes, I'm looking for you. I want you to be a man of backbone. And as soon as we have that, another problem comes up. We go, compromise. We're saved because we took a radical step in our lives. And we said, Lord, I'm forsaking all other things in my life. And I'm saying right now, Lord, it's you and you alone for the rest of my life. That's what salvation is. When you get on your knees, you ask Jesus Christ to come into your life, and you're saying, Lord, my mother's not going to help me out. My education's not going to help me out. My money is not going to help me out. I need you, God. And when you should be converted is when you make that commitment to the Lord to say, Lord, I'm going to live from you from this day forward and from evermore. And immediately, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. The Holy Spirit starts to fill you and to change you. You start to blossom. You start to grow. And then it seems like as we're now grown, we turn around and we come up with the strangest ideas and we won't stand up for the Lord. We won't even defend the Lord. We'll be ashamed of the gospel. We won't even want to admit that we're a Christian. We're going to allow every abominable thing to happen and say, oh, that's fine. And Jesus is saying, what do you mean it's fine? It's sin. These are the things that you were delivered from. Can't you stand up against them and say that they were wrong? You're watching your brother, your sister, do the exact same things that you were doing, and you won't stand up and say, brother, you're in sin. You need to ask Jesus Christ to come into your life. Oh, no, I wouldn't want to offend him. But I'll tell you what. What? Oh, it's uh, uh, Mother's Day is coming up in church and I'm going to invite them to church and hopefully I won't offend them because they're going to come to church and then they're going to feel happy and warm and fuzzy and well, at least we got them to sit in church. And we're doing things to trick people to come to church besides doing the very thing we want to do is to say, brother, you're in sin, you're going to burn in hell, you need Jesus Christ to come into your life, ask the Lord to come into your life and repent of your sin and confess it to be wrong and you'll be saved and set free. And we don't want to say that. It's hard. Maybe it's just me. I've chickened out too many times. I've watched somebody come up and say, "Dave, my life's falling apart. What do we? What am I supposed to do?" Well, come to church. No, don't come to church. Come to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Speak the truth, and don't compromise the words. Well, if you're going to live in sin, you know you're. You know it's okay. And then we don't get the results. And we go, well, you know, I'm looking at my brother, my sister, my friend, my neighbor. And I've been watching them fall into sin. And they never seem to ever get past certain points in their life. And they're always kind of miserable. And they're never, you know, able to have victory. And I go, why isn't my brother able to have victory? And the Lord's come up to me many times and just slapped me. And he says, because you never gave him a choice. You never presented the truth to him, Dave. You were ashamed of me. What do you expect him to do? You've invited him to church. People don't get saved by sitting in church. They're saved because they confess their sins and they accept Jesus Christ as Lord because you're bold enough to have backbone to speak it to him in love. And when the church ceases to speak the truth and becomes politically correct and starts to do programs to evangelize people for... Everyone come to the pig roast. And it's a temptation. How are we going to evangelize the neighborhood? Well, we want to. We want to have a pig roast, right? We want to invite people. So hopefully we're doing that, but we want to be able to speak the truth and love to them as well. We want everyone to come. We want to do whatever it takes to get people in here. But we've got to make sure that you're not coming for a pig roast and you're going home and say it was a nice social group. You're coming because hopefully we're going to be able to tell you the truth about Jesus Christ. And when the pig roast becomes more important than the message of the gospel, the church is going to be destroyed. You're nothing more than just a social club. You're nothing more than just you know, the bingo parlor down the street. People will show up and they'll do whatever they want. And here's Asa, a guy who had huge victories, who had the integrity and the knowledge at one point to stand up and says, "We don't care if you're twice the size of us. God's on our side, and you're going down." And he gets this great victory, five hundred thousand men slaughtered. Can you imagine them? Prophet even says, "So long as you serve the Lord, you're fine." Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.